Good morning. Take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. As you're turning there, how many of you are planning to come to Renew that begins this Friday? Raise your hand. All right, there's some hands out there. And uh, maybe you're wondering what Renew is about, and uh, maybe you're new to the church, or you haven't been to a Renew weekend before. It's going to be a weekend of preaching and worship, and it's going to be, I'm praying that it'll be a week of spiritual renewal for our church. Uh, for you and your life as a disciple. Take a look at the screen just to give you a little rundown of the weekend. Uh, we'll begin on Friday night right here in the community center, and we will have a service. Uh, Jason Levin's band will be here leading worship again. They do a great job uh, leading in Christ-focused worship, and uh, my dad will be preaching, kicking off Renew Weekend on Friday night. And so if you haven't heard my dad preach before, come, buckle up, get ready to go. He's going to bring it. It's going to be good. Uh, Saturday uh, night, Saturday afternoon actually, we'll begin at 4.30 with a dinner right here in the community center, free. Bring, bring your family, come and join us, uh, enjoy, It'll be a great time of fellowship, and then we will have a service in here at 6 in Brody Holloway, Jason Lovins man again, we'll be here all three services, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but Brody will be, Brody will be here uh, Saturday night preaching, and uh, Brody Holloway is the director at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, if you haven't heard him preach, uh, God, he's just a gifted teacher of the word. It's going to be a great weekend hearing him preach too. And then Sunday morning, Brody will be here as well. And we have all of our regular services and the Jason Lovins band will be here. So you can help us in a couple ways. Number one, plan to attend. All right, so come on and pray for the weekend. Prepare your heart for the weekend. Uh, also, uh, invite people. All right, we have some cards in the back of the community center and the sanctuary. Uh, invite cards, take those, give them to your friends, bring people with you. It's going to be a great weekend. We also need some help uh, with people volunteering in a certain way. All right, so we do have a need. So in order for some of, especially our younger families, uh, couples with kids uh, that need child care, they need to stay in kids ministry, we need some people to volunteer back in the kids ministry, maybe either Friday or Saturday. Uh, some of you could pick one of those nights and volunteer to stay back there so that some of those families could be in here and worship. Uh, if you can't help us out with that, go by the kids' ministry area this morning. See Miss Michelle Hudgens, our kids' ministry director, and we would love to sign you up for that opportunity to serve. All right, so let's fill the community center this weekend. It's going to be a great weekend of what I pray will be spiritual renewal for our church. But I actually hope and pray that the spiritual renewal that we experience will just be a continuation of spiritual renewal that we've already been experiencing. Uh, last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 at a great move of spiritual renewal and revival uh, that swept through the nation of Israel. And we spent last Sunday morning uh, kind of pinpointing and looking at, as we examined that revival that took place, marks or signs of revival, symptoms of revival. You want to know that revival is taking place in a church? You want to know that revival is taking place in the life of a disciple? Well, one thing you're going to see every time is you're going to see the people in their relationship with the Word of God changing. You're going to see people getting hungry to learn it. You're going to see the people rejoicing in it. You're going to see the people obeying it. Why? Because they have a renewed love for it. All right. In this chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, we're going to see another sign. And it's actually a byproduct of the sign of revival we looked at last week. Again, you want to know revival's taking place in somebody's life? You want to know that revival is taking place in a church? Well, some things are going to be happening in people's lives. People are going to be taking the Word of God seriously, and because they're taking the Word of God seriously, they're going to start taking their personal sin seriously. They're going to start practicing a lifestyle of confession and repentance. You know, they say confession is good for the soul. Have you ever heard that? 
Uh, it doesn't mean it's easy, though. All right? There are a lot of things that aren't easy that are good for us. Exercise is hard, but it's good for you. Eating right, eating healthy, that come easy for anybody in here? Most of us, it's hard, especially when you're moving through a hurricane and you're stuck in your house and your wife's cooking all kinds of snacks during the hurricane. It's hard to eat healthy, but when you eat healthy, it's a good thing. Also, in the spiritual realm, confession isn't easy, but it's always good for the soul. There's something healing, there's something comforting, there's something joy-filling that we experience as a disciple when we admit our guilt in order that we be cleansed of that guilt. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confession is good for the soul. But again, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for the man that I heard about who was dying, and he called his wife to his bedside. He said, Sweetheart, I'm dying, but I need to confess something to you. I've not always been faithful to you in this marriage. Not as faithful as I should have been. And through her tears, she leaned in and said, I know that's why I poisoned you. <laughs> a little dark humor on a Sunday morning there. I really have no clever way of tying that in in a serious way to the rest of the message. I just thought it was a great joke about confessing. What we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 9 is the people of God getting right with God. We're going to see the people of God, as their sins are exposed to them by the Word of God, seeking to get right with God. And I hope this ministers, I hope this is an encouragement to your heart this morning, because the big truth that we're walking away with today is that our God is faithful to give mercy and grace and forgiveness when His unfaithful people confess their sins and repent of them. Stand with your Bibles open. Nehemiah 9, chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord. Their God. A quarter of the day they stood and they read the Bible. We can't compete with that today. We're going to stick with three verses. You may have a seat. All right? Let me pray. Father, it is a gift to hear from you today. I pray as we move through this, Father, that we will realize how foolish it is to take the faithfulness and the blessings that you've poured out on us for granted. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful today of your goodness. I pray that we'd be mindful today of your faithfulness, of all that you've done for us. God, you are abundantly good to us in so many ways. And I pray that as we walk through this text, Father, that you would show yourself to us, that you'd reveal our sin to us, and that you would show us your son, that you would show us Jesus. And God, in seeing him clearly, I pray that we would walk in new patterns of obedience for your glory and for our good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one thing that's true for all of us in Christ who are here today is that all of us are a work in progress this side of heaven. Uh, we're all going to experience, if you're a Christ follower, even if you're a Christ follower, I'll say it that way, times of sin, times of distress in your life. Not just in your life, my goodness, in this upcoming week, in this past week, 
And when we come to passages like this, I mention that because what we don't want to do is we don't want to come here and study this story about something happening in the lives of Israelites living 2,500 years ago and seeing a lot of the ways that they're blundering and they're getting things wrong and in just some really stupid ways they're sinning. And to look at this from the outside thinking, how on earth could these people be so sinful? Because what we need to understand is that in so many ways we are them. Even after we come to Christ... We're very similar to the Israelites. We can run headlong into sin in different ways, into rebellion. We can drift into unfaithfulness. We can think at times we're better managers of our lives than the Lord is. We can chase things in the world looking for fulfillment, looking for life, looking for purpose. There are plenty of similarities between our sinfulness and the sinfulness of Israel. But I also want to insert here that the good news in this text this morning is that no matter how we choose to walk in sin and unfaithfulness, this text tells us that God dispenses mercy and forgiveness into the lives of unfaithful people who approach him in humility about their sin. That's an incredible truth that we find in this text this morning. We find the truth that there is more grace in Christ, there is more mercy in Christ, there is more forgiveness in Christ than there is sin in us. And that's important for us to remember as people who are a lot like the Israelites, who are prone to wander. And what this text is going to show us is that when we do wander, when our wandering is revealed to us, when our sin is exposed to us, when we're confronted with our sin, this passage is going to show us how we're to respond to that. It's really going to show us a pathway of repentance. And so what I want to see here is we study how God's people here in Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 9 respond when they are confronted with their sin. We're going to see three biblical ways that they respond, how we can respond and should respond as well when we're made aware of ours. First, we see them humbly responding to God's word. First, we see them humbly responding to God's word. Look again at verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. All right, let's stop there. So three and a half weeks have passed since the timestamp we see at the beginning of chapter 8. It's the 24th day of the seventh month. But the scene has changed a lot in that short amount of time. All right, we've gone from celebration to conviction over sin. Here they are, convicted in their sin. It says they're clothed in sackcloth. That's a garment made of camel's hair, a really rough material. They're intentionally clothing themselves here on the 24th day of the seventh month in clothing that would, of discomfort that would communicate how uncomfortable they feel in their sin. They're dumping earth on their heads to symbolize how dirty they feel in the sight of a holy God in their sin. What in the world happened? I mean, last week we left them like partying it up, right? Eating steaks and deep fried Oreos, right? Commanded to go home and have a feast and to party in light of the goodness of God. What has changed? Why such a big change in mood? Because over the last 24 days, day after day, the word of God has been read to them. They've heard it. They've been confronted through it by their unfaithfulness and their sin. And they realize they got some unfinished business with God. The conviction that they experienced in chapter 8, if you'll remember, before they were told to go home and to rejoice that it is a season of celebration, a festival, that conviction that they felt has only grown. And I want you to look at how they respond. Look at verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. So they're taking care of their nation's sin. They're owning their sin here. 
and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For a quarter of the day they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood. Here we go again. A lot of names. Jesua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny. That poor guy, man. His parents named him Bunny. All right. Made middle school tough years for him. Cherubiah, Bani, uh, Shenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, some other guys, their names, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I just want you to simply make note, very simple point here. A lot of verses in this chapter. But I want to make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees in this passage. I want to make sure we see some big truths here. And I simply just want you to make note of how they're responding to their sin as it's revealed to them. As they're exposed to their sin, notice how they respond. They don't minimize their sin. They don't justify their sin. They don't try to pass it off as not a big deal and just move on with their life. No, what do they do? What's their response? They gather for three hours and continue to read the law of God that revealed the sin to them in the first place. Then they spend three hours humbly laying on their face in the presence of the Lord, confessing their sin. They confess their sin for, check it, quarter of the day, three hours. Some of you are like, those must have been some really messed up people. They're confessing sin for three hours. What in the world did they do? No, in fact, there are people in this crowd who are guilty of committing, are broken like this because they're guilty of committing sins that many of us would categorize as small sins. What's happening here is they are hit with the seriousness of all their sin. They're broken and convicted about all the unfaithfulness and failure in their life that's been exposed to them by the Word of God. And as they're confronted by it, what do we see them doing? What is their first move? They're humbly pressing in close to God. They're turning to God. They're confessing their sins to God. They're drawing close to God and worshiping God. And our initial response when it comes to sin should be the same. To humbly move towards God with our sin and to confess it and to take it serious. Can I just be honest with you? Can we just be honest this morning? Can I just be honest with you? Real talk for a few moments. Right, I've been a Christian for 22, a little over 22 years. And I just want to say, I don't know if you're with me, that not all the time when I'm confronted by my sin do I respond to it in a humble way, in a dependable posture upon God. Am I the only one? I mean, like how often you guys, when your godly wife comes to you and is like, hey, you know, in humility, she goes, she's like, hey, can we talk tonight? And you sit down and she's like, hey, I just want to talk to you. And she, in a loving way, proceeds to kind of make you aware of some things in your life, maybe some blind spots that maybe you may be falling short in. How many of you, your immediate response, guys, is, darling, you're right. I mean, thank you for sharing those observations with me. I mean, I receive those with humility. I receive that correction. You're completely right, and I'm going to immediately get to work on those things. How many of you actually respond that way every time? No, the usual response is, oh, we're going to do like, we're going to have a little constructive criticism party? All right, let me take the floor. Let me, let me, okay, you shared that with me. Let me share some things about your life with you. Often our first move is not humility. We often, we often wrestle with minimizing sin, of justifying sin of blame shifting, like with our kids, right? Like, if you would just have been a faithfully perfect little angel, I wouldn't have blew my lid. I wouldn't have completely lost my mind and yelled at you like that. Right? We have a propensity when we sin to spin things, don't we? 
to minimize sin, to downplay sin, to dismiss our sin. I could keep laying out those examples that all of us could identify with, but just let me simply ask you, where do you go when you're confronted in your sin? What do you do when you're confronted with your failure, with your unfaithfulness? Do you blame shift? Do you minimize it? Do you downplay it? Do you try to justify it? Do you make excuses? Or does your sin lead you to have a humble heart before God? When His Word and His Spirit reveal sin to you, are you in the practice of humbly bringing that sin before God? That's the first biblical way we see, first move we should take when it comes to walking a path of repentance. Number two, we see them responding as they're confronted with their sin. We see them remembering God's faithfulness. Remembering God's faithfulness. So we see the Israelites turn their attention in the right direction. They turn their attention to God. But you might be, you might be genuinely asking this morning, why are they turning to God? Like, what good is that going to do them? And the answer is, and what we're going to see in this text, is because there's only one person in existence who can deal and help them deal with their sin, and that's God. God is the only one who can help you deal with the sin in your life. God is the only one who can forgive sin. And they run to Him because they know that He's literally, He literally has a history of doing just that. Of helping people deal with their sin. He literally has a history of faithfully forgiving sin. And so they proceed here to remember in this long section here in Nehemiah chapter 9, they remember that, right? And they give this history of his faithfulness and specifically his faithfulness to forgive his people. So starting in verse 6, what you have is this 26-verse prayer, probably prayed by Ezra. And it's a rundown of the character and the faithfulness of God, specifically His faithfulness to dispense mercy and grace into the lives of His children. You have this rundown of His character that runs from creation. They cover the covenant between Abraham and God, to the exodus, to the wilderness wanderings, to the conquest, to the promised land, to the judges, to the prophets, to the exile, to the present time that they're rebuilding this wall. And it's this incredible recounting of the history of God's perfect faithfulness to an imperfect, unfaithful people. It's the fullest summary of the Old Testament that you're going to find in the Old Testament. It's a biblical theology of God's faithfulness. And by the way, if you're here and you feel disconnected from the Old Testament, like that, you feel like, I don't know if I totally understand the Old Testament, read, start with Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, you'll get a grasp of the overall message. You'll see stories there, some of the main stories, but you'll get a grasp of the overall message of not just Nehemiah, but also the entire Old Testament. In fact, the entire Bible, and it's this, God is faithful to unfaithful people. From creation to right now. And so what we see in these verses, in these 26 verses in this rundown, is you see these patterns. You see these patterns of God being really good and faithful to Israel and Israel being bad. God being really faithful and good to Israel, and then Israel rebelling against God and being unfaithful. And then you see them crying out to God for help and for mercy and forgiveness, and we see God showing mercy and forgiveness and grace, and it's like on repeat throughout the, all, all of the Old Testament. And here, what Ezra's covering in his prayer is he's covering like at least six cycles of this pattern in Israel's history. We see that recorded right here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And so... In order to save us from actually having a quarter of a day, three-hour service this morning, I'm not going to walk through this verse by verse, all right? I was waiting for some amens there, but I didn't get any. I'll go three-hour now. But in this section, I want you to take note here as we step back again. Don't miss the force for the trees. I want you to take note of three key themes, three key truths that are evident in all of these cycles. 
in all of these cycles that are presented. Things we need to remember in the midst of our unfaithfulness. All right, so let's, we're just going to look at a couple of accounts here. But the first key theme or the first key truth that comes out in all of these cycles is this. God never leaves or forgets his people. God never leaves or forgets his people. Look at verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers in the depths as a stone into mighty waters. All right, so this is taking us back to Exodus. All right, prior to this, uh, Ezra's praying and, and reflecting on and thinking back to the covenant between God and Abraham. And then he moves to the Exodus. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you immediately understand and your mind's going to where, uh, what this is talking about. You know, the people of God were working in Egypt under the authority of harsh taskmasters. They were feeling forgotten. They were feeling neglected. They were feeling used and abused. They were enslaved. And they cry out to God. And what does God do? God hears their cries. And He responds. And He delivers them. He leads them out of Egypt. He splits the Red Sea. He gets them across safely to the other side. And then he makes the sea swallow up an enemy army, Pharaoh's army. God miraculously saves them and delivers them out of slavery and out of death. And so what we see here, and it's what we see all throughout the history of Israel, if we continue to read in Nehemiah chapter 9 and if we read the whole of the Old Testament, is this truth that God never forgets or leaves his people. Now I want to stop, and I I do want to just stop and time out and pray that that's an encouragement to some of you here today. Because there are some of you here today that are in a difficult, hard spot. And you may be asking the same question they were asking in Egypt. God, where are you? God, have you forsaken me? God, have you forgotten me? God, are you angry at me? God, have you abandoned me? And the reality is, is all of us will spend time in a season like that and on days like that where we're going to ask questions, where we're going to doubt God. But here we see, as we look back on the faithfulness of God in Scripture, as we see the faithfulness of God throughout history, we see that this is a truth, that this is a promise that you can take to the bank, that God will never, has never, shall never leave you. He cares for you in Christ Jesus. He loves you more deeply than your mind could ever begin to fathom in Christ Jesus. He is for you. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are held in His firm grasp. If you are in Christ Jesus, He will hold you fast until the end. He never lets go of you, even in different ways when we find different ways to let go of Him in our sin or try to let go of Him. He never lets go of us. And so in the midst of these hard places... Remember this, God may not give you what you want, but He will always give you what you need, namely His presence, Himself. And He also gives you the promise that what you go through, He's going to sustain you through it, and He's also going to use it to sanctify you and to shape you and to transform you more into the image of Christ. That is His vision for your life. That vision never changes. Boy, our plans do change. And there's all kinds of detours. And there's all kinds of interruptions that we don't understand from our vantage point. God knows what he's doing. He has the destination in mind. He's conforming you more to the image of his his son. You know what that means? It means whatever you're going through is part of that process. Number two, God leads and provides for his people. Verse 12. 
By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from the heavens and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. All right, so God's leading them. This is the wilderness wanderings here. It's kind of... reaching back to some of those times in Israel's history. It's, it's reminding, they're remembering that God led his people through the desert, through the wilderness, a pillar of fire by night, by cloud, by day. All right, that's, that's, some, that's some Old Testament GPS right there, right? We see God leading his people. He gave them his law to lead them, all right? His commandments to show them how to live, how to be in a right relationship with him. He's revealing himself to his people through his word. He provided for them daily. He met their physical needs, right? He, the, the manna that came down from heaven, right? Just go back and read about that. It's amazing. They're in the wilderness, and, and scholars tell us that when, you, when they walked out of their tent, the way that manna would flake on the ground, it looked like frost on the ground, and they gather it up, and they make these cakes, and it so they tasted like honey. How about that? God delivering some hot, and now Krispy Kreme donuts on the field every morning when they come out of their tents. And so, church, can I just say... As we look back on the history of God's faithfulness to provide in the Old Testament, He didn't stop providing in the lives of His people when we close the Old Testament. He continues to provide and to lead His people today. He still does this for us today. You say, well, I'm not getting led around by a pillar of fire. I'm not getting led around by a pillar of smoke. No, it's even better. He's put His presence inside of you. He's taken up residence inside of you, believer, to empower you. He's given you His Word to help shape you and helps transform you, to inform you, to guide you, to change your life from the inside out. See, these are historical moments that are to be reminders that God never leaves us, He never forsakes us, and He never stops being faithful to lead us and to provide for us. And He does it through primarily His Word, through His Spirit, and through His people, through His church. And the third one in this prayer that we're reminded about, and this is the main one, all right? In each of these cycles, this is the main truth, the main theme that we want to pull out, pull out here. Here it is, ready? He's not just never going to leave us, not forsake us. It's not just that he's going to, you know, always provide for us. Here's the, here's the third truth. He's always ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive. Look at verse 16. But they and the fathers acted presumptuously, presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Think about how crazy this is, right? Think about all the amazing... God split the Red Sea. God led them through the wilderness, has provided for them manna from heaven, water from a rock. Think about all the amazing ways. And he goes on and continues to talk about these different ways that God has provided for them. And how do they respond with rebellion? How do they respond? They stiffen their neck. It's crazy, isn't it? Even, and it gets into this right here, the story about Moses going up onto the mountain to meet with God on behalf of the people. How exciting is that? 
And God gives him the law. He gives him the Ten Commandments. Puts it on those tablets. And here he comes down the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments for them to live rightly by. And he walks down and he's like, hey, I got the commandments. Hey, what's written on those commandments? And he, the first one that's written on there, they're breaking it. They've built a cow and they're worshiping a cow and giving the cow credit for getting them out of Egypt. It says they stiffen their necks. That means they were doing what they wanted to do. It's a picture of an ox that doesn't want the person that owns him to move him anywhere. That's what it means to be stiff-necked. This is a picture of Israel. They're forgetting about his faithfulness and they're turning to do their own thing. And this is a prayer recalling how time and time again through Israel's history, and if you keep reading through this prayer, it's recalling the time of the judges. It's recalling the time of the kings. It's recalling their time in exile. People continuously, as God's been faithful to them, the people responding with unfaithfulness, stiffening their necks, rebelling against God. We see this. Here's the truth that we see in Scripture. God is perfectly faithful. The only thing faithful we are about is being unfaithful. They're faithfully unfaithful. And yet in their unfaithfulness, we see that God never stops continuously and faithfully dispensing His mercy and His forgiveness into their life. Continues to pursue them, continues to be faithful to forgive them, continues to show them grace, continues to be ready to forgive, continues to be slow to anger, continues to abound in steadfast love, continues to be faithful. And that's good news for us today. Because we're not looking at this from the outside in going, how could they do that? How could they put a calf together made of gold and worship that as Moses is up there meeting, like actually meeting with God? How in the world can they experience all of these amazing miracles and all of this faithfulness, all of these moments where the the, the supernatural breaks through the natural and God breaks through and does miraculous things to provide for them and to save them and to deliver them? How in the world could they, God be so faithful to them and then turn and be so unfaithful? I'm skipping ahead a little bit. But we have to turn and go, how in the world can we look back on the pages of Scripture and see where God demonstrated His faithfulness and love for us most clearly on the cross and turn and respond to that with rebellion? See, we're a lot like the Israelites. We look at them and we are them. But as God throughout history, never stops forgiving, never stops being faithful to be merciful, never stops being ready to forgive. You know what that means for us? It means that as a Christian in this room, you cannot out the grace of God. As they're recounting all of this history, it is very clear that God takes sin with a stone-cold seriousness but he also takes with a stone-cold seriousness his commitment to woo us back to himself. Believer, never get over this gospel truth that the amount of love that God has for you in Christ Jesus is always greater than the amount of hate that he has for the sin in your life. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing you are currently doing. There is nothing one day that you will do that is outside of where the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of God can reach, Christian. So we've got to remember these truths that God is perfectly faithful to never leave us or forget us. He's faithful to lead us and to provide for us. We're faithful to be unfaithful, and yet He is faithful to forgive us. And you may be wondering, how, how are you sure? Like, how are you so sure about that? That sounds good, but how do we know that for sure? Again, I spoiled it a second ago, but just continue to read through the Old Testament, and eventually you're going to get to Jesus. Eventually you're going to get to the cross. 
Eventually you're going to get to the place that all of the Old Testament points to, and it's Jesus. He is the ultimate example of what it looks like to not forgive, I'm sorry, forget or leave your people. He's the ultimate example of God providing for His people and meeting us in our greatest time of need. He's the ultimate example. Think about it. Jesus on the cross is the ultimate example of God being ready, faithful and ready to forgive His people of their sins. When we look at Jesus, we remember, we get used to this truth. That's Emmanuel. God with us. That God actually came to us. That He put on flesh. God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect sinless life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. He rose from the grave conquering the enemy that we can't conquer. On the cross became the propitiation for our sins. The satisfactory substitute. The faithful one laying down His life for the unfaithful. And He did this so that unfaithful people like us could be made right with a faithful, good, holy God. Think about Emmanuel. Think about what we're going to be celebrating soon. Scary. Christmas is coming. Think about that baby in the manger. Think about the lengths to which he went to demonstrate his love for us. Think about the lengths to which he went to demonstrate the truth that he's a God ready to forgive. God's people in Nehemiah 9 are there looking back to the faithfulness of God that they've experienced in their nation and in the life of their people. His faithfulness to show mercy. And hey, and they, they're looking at it from creation to the completion of this wall. We get an extended view of his faithfulness. We get to see his faithfulness demonstrated time and time again from creation to the cross and beyond. And like the Israelites, we need to be in a regular rhythm of recalling and remembering His faithfulness, especially His faithfulness demonstrated for us to the cross that He's ready to forgive and dispense mercy and grace into our life. You say, why? Because we are a lot like the Israelites. We're stiff-necked, we drift, we rebel. And we need to remember and reflect on His grace in our lives regularly and daily like they're doing in this prayer. I want to encourage you to do that even in your prayer life. In your prayer life, recall His faithfulness. Recount His faithfulness in Scripture. But also, when's the last time that you've actually paused and remembered His faithfulness in your own life? How the Lord has saved you. How He sustained you through the hard seasons of life. How He has worked relentlessly to transform you. Oh, hey, there's a, there's a lot left to do. And praise God, one day we're going to get to heaven and we'll never have to repent again. We'll never have to confess another sin. He's go we're going to be conformed in a process called glorification to the image of Jesus Christ. And we got a long way to go, but listen, if you're a Christian, you should be able to look back and go, hey, I'm not where I should be, but praise God, I'm not where I was. Do you stop and do you remember and look back at how faithful He's been to transform your life? We must be a people who remember who God is, that He's always been faithful, and how He never runs out of mercy. He never runs out of grace. He never runs out of forgiveness. He never runs out of opportunities in the life of the disciple when you come to him with your sin to hit reset once again and to start again. He'll never stop. Believer, he never stops being that way. It's who he is. Look at his track record of faithfulness. Look at his readiness to forgive and show mercy in this Bible demonstrated ultimately and most fully at the cross. He will never stop dispensing grace and mercy and forgiveness into your life. 
He hasn't up to this point. And he won't stop. It's who he is. He's ready to forgive. He'll never stop, which begs the question, if that is true, disciple, if he never stops being faithful and ready to forgive, then why would I ever stop being in a posture of repentance? Why would I ever stop confessing sin? It doesn't make sense. He'll forgive me. He'll forgive me, and not only will he forgive me, the joy that I might not even know that I've lost will be restored. As I experience 1 John 1, 9, as I confess my sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If we're able to look back at the cross and say, okay, he's definitely ready to forgive. He's definitely always willing to extend mercy once again in my life. Why would I not live in a posture of repentance and confession? Which brings us to the third point this morning. Brings us to the third point this morning. Humbly respond to God's word. Carefully remember God's faithfulness. And third, very quickly, genuinely repent of your sin in light of those truths. Look at verse 37. In verse 37, they're kind of going through this section where they're in the promised land, but they still realize and understand because of the sins of their people, they're still in many ways enslaved the Persian Empire, and there's still so much wrong. And they're saying in verse 37, everything we got goes to these other kings and doesn't come to us. He said, it's rich yield, goes to the, talking about the land, goes to the kings whom you have set over us, Persia, because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestocks as they please, and we're in great distress. They're lifting their eyes to God. Help. That's what that means. And in verse 38 it says, Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. A lot of verses in this chapter. We don't have time today to cover everything, obviously. But what I want you to see, big picture, as God's people are thinking back on the faithfulness of God and His willingness to forgive, they respond with repentance. They respond with confession and repentance. Confession, repentance. Where does your mind go when I say confession and repentance? Some of you hear confession, and maybe you were raised in a religious tradition where that involves you sitting in a booth talking to somebody on the other side of the wall about your sin. Maybe you hear the word repent, and you think about a soapbox preacher standing on the side of the road yelling, turn or burn. Maybe your mind, when you think of confession or repentance, goes to, like, that's what you do for really, really big sins, you know, but... All of those ideas are off. If we look into this text, if we look into the pages of Scripture, right here in this story, you get a biblical idea, a biblical picture of what biblical repentance is. We've talked about confession a lot in this chapter already, in chapter 4, chapter 1. But what I want to make sure you understand is there is a difference between confession and repentance. Confession is coming into the presence of God. Have you done this about your sin? You don't have to have a religious figure in front of you, a person that you come to and confess your sin, you can step right into the presence of God. And what confession is, is stepping into this presence and acknowledging and admitting the sin in your life that you realize is there in light of God's Word. It's the admission of guilt or wrongdoing. It's saying, Jesus, I've done wrong. I've sinned. I've been unfaithful. I've messed up. I own up to it. I'm not spinning it. It's nobody else's fault. I'm refusing to pass the blame like we often can do. Often people like apologize in a way that doesn't show a true heart behind it, right? I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. I'm sorry if what I said made you feel that way. 
I, I, I'm sorry, I mean, you, you don't understand. I mean, I, I'm sorry I did that, but let me just explain a little bit about how my day's gone and why I responded the way that I responded. Often we can spin our sin that way when we come into the presence of God. When we truly confess sin, we own it. Nobody else's fault. It's me. And that's what the people are doing in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. Repentance, on the other hand, and the two should go hand in hand, is not just confessing our sin, but it's turning away from that sin, turning to Christ to experience restored fellowship with Him once again as He extends mercy once again, and then choosing to walk in His ways as opposed to the sinful ways that I was walking in before. That's what repentance is. And that's what we see the people doing here. They're repenting. They don't minimize their sin. They're holistically owning their sin, personal sin, national sin. And their primary concern, although they are concerned about their circumstances, isn't their circumstances. Their primary concern is that they have sinned against an infinitely holy, good, gracious, perfect God. That's what's gripped their hearts. And when that has gripped your heart, when your sin against a holy God has gripped your heart, and you're broken, and you begin to take steps of confession and repentance, revival's taking place. Spiritual restoration's taking place. Spiritual renewal is taking place. And they confess and they repent. And that very last verse that you see in chapter 9, which leads into the whole of chapter 10, you see that they're serious. They're genuinely repenting. God's made a covenant to them. It's an unconditional covenant. But here they are making a covenant to take up their part of that covenant that they broke. In other words, I guess in essence you could say they're rededicating their life. So believer this morning, let me ask you, where do you need to repent? Where have you been unfaithful to the Lord? Where have you compromised? Where have you drifted? Where in your life is there sin that's eclipsing your worship of the Lord. That's put a wedge between you and your fellowship with God. That's what sin does. And that fellowship can't be restored. I'm not talking about, if you're a Christian, I'm not talking about your soul. That's safe in the hands of God. But our fellowship can get messed with between us and God because of our personal sin. And the only way that that fellowship is restored is through confession and Repentance. Maybe this morning you need to be saved. Maybe you need to confess your sin, singular. You need to acknowledge that your sin is separating you from a holy God. And you need to believe that God has dealt with that on the cross through the death of His Son, paying the penalty for your sin. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. He rose again, proving that He is the Son of God, proving that the work that He set out to accomplish on the cross is finished. And this morning, you're, you're lost, and you need to look back on the pages of Scripture, history, and see Jesus on the cross and believe that what He did on that cross counts for you. Maybe that's what you need to do today, but maybe Jesus is your king this morning. And I want you to listen very, very carefully in what I'm about to say. Some of you have been guilty of, in God's Word, maybe through this series, maybe over the last weeks or months in his word, days in his word, maybe through a spouse, maybe something's happened and things have kind of blown up and your failures have been exposed. How are you responding to that? Do you minimize it? 
Are you justifying it? Are you trying to spin it? What I'm inviting you to do today is to confess it. To repent of it. But to remember as you do, this is what I want you to pay attention to. Give me another 60 seconds of your time. I want to remind you of something if you're in Christ. Because this is going to help you practice biblical repentance and confession. That in Christ, no matter what your failure is, no matter how much you've wandered, no matter how unfaithful you've been, your failures don't define you in Christ Jesus. Your sin does not define you. It's God's faithfulness. It's who He is. It's what He has done for you that defines you. Your failure doesn't define you. You have an identity in Christ. You know what defines you? You, you want to know who you are? The Bible says that you, your identity is that you're chosen. You're adopted. You're a child of God. You're fully accepted. You're beloved. That means you're not just loved by God in Christ Jesus. You're greatly loved by God in Christ Jesus. Our sin does not define us anymore once we're in Christ Jesus. It's His faithfulness and His mercy and His grace that defines us. And you know what that should do? That should produce a freedom in us to repent of our sin. That should produce a freedom in us to come before God and even brothers and sisters in Christ and to admit where we fail. If we don't, what kind of game are we playing? It should produce a freedom in us to practice a lifestyle continuously of confession and repentance. Here's the good news for you, Christian. This is a reason to run into the arms of Jesus this morning. Your failure does not define you. And there's nothing that you've done that puts you out of the reach of the restoring mercy and grace of God this morning. Repent. Hey, repent and believe isn't something we just leave at the moment that we meet Jesus. It's centered in our life as disciples. Where do you need to confess? Where do you need to repent? Let's take care of that this morning. Let's pray.